0: Well, the Lord, the Lord calls us to bring our cares before him and lay them at his feet. Um, it's a beautiful promise, and he calls us to do that, and he says, and Peter says, that we should do that knowing that in due time he will lift us up. It's a guarantee, it's a promise that God says that when we do these things, he will indeed, in due time, uh, lift us up. So let's go to the Lord again in prayer and bring our concerns before him our father in heaven lord we recognize that you are a good god an inviting god a perfectly loving god who is always calling your children to come near your side to be ministered to and cared for and loved so lord we bring our concerns and our needs before you Uh, lord first we recognize that there are many who are suffering whether physically in our congregation or even emotionally and spiritually lord particularly we think of aurora and a loss of a loved one um, two of them even in the last number of weeks here lord we pray that as your word says that we are to receive comfort from christ father we pray that aurora and the family would know particular comfort from jesus christ and we pray lord that those of us too who have suffered in similar ways that we would come alongside of her and minister the gospel to her in order that she might be uh, brought to the cross knowing that in due time you indeed will lift her up as, lo- as well as the others who suffer in our congregation father for, for the number of us who suffer from physical ailments lord we do pray that that as they go through their suffering and their hurt and their pain that that would cause them to Uh, hate sin all the more knowing that physical ailments are a result in judgment of sin but then also we pray lord that they would hope in the resurrection body that has been earned for christians by jesus christ who died and was raised again so lord we pray that even as we are to some degree are heading and moving towards um a physical bodily death lord we pray that we our ultimate hope would be in the bodily resurrection and especially in following jesus's train our lord and savior so lord we bring these issues before you and we pray lord that by your spirit you would indeed bear us up bring us to the savior we pray by the power of your spirit in your name we pray amen so contrary to what many people believe there is only one type of person that God condemns. Contrary to what many people believe, there is only one type of person that God condemns. The question then is, who is this person? It is the person who remains in their unbelief. That is the type of person that God condemns. Now, if you forget that, then the passage we look at today can be very confusing. Our series through the book of Genesis brings us to the destruction of two very wicked cities and the surrounding cities of that particular valley. Those two cities are Sodom and Gomorrah. Our book, Genesis, that we're walking through is written by a man named Moses around the time of Exodus when the Israelites were leaving Egypt. Uh, So not only does Moses write the book of Genesis, he writes the next four books. So together you have Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those five books are known as the Pentateuch. Penta for five, and tuq basically is uh, a word that refers to the law, the Hebrew word for law. So he wrote the first five books. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 19. And as we walk through this passage, let me just say, as other people have noted, this passage is rated R. Um... And oftentimes in many portions of the Bible, you have very rated R sections, Uh, but we have the conviction that all of God's word is useful for us. All of God's word is instructive for us. And just as Israel would read the law to the people, so we do the same and we don't want to excuse some of it. We don't need to shy away from it because we know that it, it is indeed useful for us today. Genesis chapter 19 opens in this way. Look at verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So if you guys were here with us last week, where we looked at Genesis 18, we saw that God and two angels had literally visited Abraham and Sarah. Abraham was a superb host and the Lord actually physically ate with him. The only person in the Old Testament who ate with the Lord. And then he turns after this beautiful fellowship meal to then reaffirm the promise to Sarah, even though she was wrestling with her unbelief. Now, the promise that he had given Abraham and Sarah concerned, as we've been looking at, um, the promise of land, the promise of multiple offspring, so seed. And then the promise that someone from his line would be a blessing. And so then now in chapter 18, as well as other chapters, we see that their faith is sort of fluctuating. You know, when exactly is God going to fulfill his promises? I mean, 25 years goes by before the promise is actually fulfilled. So you guys know if you guys have ever made a promise, you know, your children or if you have been given a promise, you know, you're dying to see that particular promise fulfilled. And Abraham and Sarah, they got to wait 20 years. Five years and so here in this section Genesis 18 god draws near to her and says yes you indeed will have a son from your very own womb the second half of genesis chapter 18 the lord states his intention to move towards sodom in judgment to sweep away the whole city for their wickedness and then in wanting to teach abraham a lesson he brings Abraham into his council and basically reveals what he's going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he wants Abraham to intercede for the righteous, to, to, to not only to not only side with righteousness, but also the righteous, because that's what, their, that's what their task was. They were supposed to go out into the world and to be a wonderful display of God's character. They were supposed to walk in their blamelessness before God and the nations, so that the nations would look at the people of god and think that is something certainly different thank god abraham does he pleads that the lord would not sweep away the righteous with the wicked and he prays you know if there are 50 are found if there are 45 found if there are 30 20 and 10 and the chapter ends with the lord and abraham simply going in their separate directions but god still had plans to judge the city Remember, God was going to determine and to know and then to weigh the situations, the outcries that were going up to him. As it says there that the outcry had risen up to God's ears and it had grasped God's attention. And so he goes down wanting to administer perfect justice amongst the people. He goes down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the angels are sent there. And remember, Genesis chapter 18, Genesis chapter 19 are sort of drawn out as uh, contrasts. The Lord approaches Sarah and Abraham in the daytime, in the light of day. But here it says that the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And literally, it's just darkness. And Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. So we know that this cannot be good. This cannot be good. This is not something we do today, right? So we can understand this. If we wanted to get a picture of what the Christian genocide is what it looks like that's going on currently in iraq we don't generally say let's just go to iraq in the middle of the fighting and figure out what's going on but the angels here are going descending into the middle of this very wicked city so tension is rising here from the very first verse of chapter 19 verses 2 and 3 when they get to the city lot bows down to meet them and he says look please stay at my place he says And they said, no, we'll we'll stay in the town square. So they're saying, really, we're going to stay in the center of this particularly wicked city. And so we know something bad is going to happen. And if you've been reading Genesis with us for the last number of weeks, you know that this is certainly coming. I mean, the life of Abraham here is really God is holding out for us as a practical example of what it looks like to walk by faith and not by sight and contrasted. With Abraham is not only Sodom and Gomorrah, but also Lot. And Lot, we see, has this inkling towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's, he's inching towards Sodom and Gomorrah. So in Genesis chapter 13, right, when Abraham and where Abram, that's what he's called then, and Lot are in this land, the land can't support him. Abram says, look, you go ahead and pick the land that you want. Lot was his adopted nephew. So Abram says, in deference to him, he says, look, you choose where you want to go. And and Lot chooses with his eyes. He chooses as he lives by sight. Genesis 13, 10 says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Now you would figure that that would be something good. It's also well watered like the land of Egypt, it says, in the direction of Zoar. And then Moses says, This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Not good. He's inching towards Sodom and Gomorrah. He's living by sight and not by faith. But already from Genesis 13, Lot is setting his sights on Sodom. But not only does he set his sights on Sodom, he settles among Sodom. It says there in Genesis 13, 12, that Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent, uh, moved his tent as far as Sodom. And then again, Moses says, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against Sodom the Lord. Sodom was known for their unrighteousness, for their social oppression. And it is that that captures the attention of the Lord Almighty. It is that that brings down the Lord so that he might administer perfect justice. A justice that's always informed by his 100% love and 100% knowledge and 100% wisdom. And so we know, as Christians, that his timing and his judgment is always good, even though we might not quite understand it. Genesis 18.20 says, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, he goes down. So let's see what uh, Sodom's hearts, the men, do to these angels. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 19. But... Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. You see how pervasive this wickedness is? That's so absolutely clear here. The men of Sodom, both the young and the old. So all the categories coming out, all the people. And then it says, To the last man. So here we're reminded of when Abraham was pleading before God. You know, if there are 50, if there are 45, if there are 30, 20, 10. There are not, apart from Lot, there is not even one. All of them. To the last man. They're surrounding this house. They're asking them to bring them out. It's pervasive wickedness. What is the form of the wickedness? He says there, that we may know them. Um, now, again, I said that this was rated R, so some of you guys might be having interesting conversations with your children on the way home, um, but we need not shy away from it. This, when it says that they, may, they want to know him, what they're talking about here is explicit sexual interaction with these men. Explicit sexual interaction with these men. It's a sexual act. To know, it summarizes the sex act. Now, some have argued that, oh, no, what's really not, what's, what's going on here isn't the sin of, of sex here man and man it's referring to inhospitality that's what they were guilty of that certainly is what they were guilty of but here that's not primarily what they're guilty of and the text tells us exactly that they want to know them so genesis 4 1 i mean it's clearly established that the word know can carry both connotations of just knowing information about a person. But then also, very specifically in Genesis, it is talking about sexual things. Genesis 4.1 says, Adam went in to his wife and knew her again. That's what it's talking about there. <clears throat> Not only that, but in the flow of the context, you see what's clearly on Lot's mind here. He knows what they want and he calls their desires wicked. You know, I mean, do we ever call somebody wicked who simply just wants to get to know us? No, we don't do that. He says, I beg you, brothers, look there in the text, do not act so wickedly. So they're not trying to just generically get to know these men. They're trying to do something else with them. Not only that, but we also see uh, that sex is in the mind of lot based on his abominable, horrible plan. It is just shocking to see how he responds here. He says, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. There he's not talking about they haven't actually intellectually gotten to know somebody. He says, Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. But This is, this is mind-boggling here. He's saying that they are still virgins. Lot's daughters at this point in time were engaged to be married. They are engaged to be married. And in that culture, they were basically considered married. Uh, To the point where Lot's soon-to-be sons-in-law were considered already his sons-in-law, as we go on and see later on. So their wickedness is playing itself out in the realm of the sexual, specifically here, homosexual rape. So in today's confused confused culture, we have to ask the question, what exactly is wrong here according to the word of God? What exactly is wrong here? Is rape wrong? you know thankfully in most cultures around the world we would there would be no discussion and by god's grace here in america there is no discussion about whether or not that's wrong that is not the case around the world unfortunately you've been reading the news you know that this is not the case but what about the issue of homosexuality there's a lot of confusion going around and talk about whether or not according to the bible homosexuality is wrong and this is happening all around us. So, for example, there's this, um, a Southern Baptist church in La Mirada who recently voted to embrace homosexuality. And what happened is that the church has now split 60%. That is the majority of the people voted that the church not accept it. And uh, I believe it's 60%. And they have left and split. The 40% have remained And uh, now our local association, that is the Los Angeles Association of Southern Baptist Churches, are moving towards uh, disfellowshipping this church. Because according to the Bible, it is not okay. According to the Bible, God says that this sin is a sin. So biblical evidence saying that homosexuality is, is sin is plentiful. I mean, when God formally gives his law, he states in Leviticus 18 and in 20. Similarly, he says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. So they're an abomination. It means to idolatry. Interestingly enough, it's idolatry. So that has to do with one's heart before God. As opposed to how many of us might think about homosexuality as it is an abomination in terms of our own social mores that we like to live by. That's not what it's saying here. He's talking about one's heart before God. It's interesting. And then in the New Testament, go ahead and turn there. We can look at Romans chapter 1. It's a very important passage. Romans chapter 1. And this passage not only addresses the sin of homosexuality, but sin in general. He's getting ultimately to the nature of all sin. So in other words, we're talking about all of us here today, presently. And in the passage, Paul writes out how the whole world is under sin, both Jew and Gentile. Romans chapter 1, he gets at Gentiles first, and then he moves to the Jew and says they are both under sin, apart from jesus christ so the question is well what exactly did these people do they rejected god they exchanged god for something else it says that they, number one they exchanged the glory of god for images of creatures number two they exchanged now we're in around around uh, chapter or sorry verse Um, 23 and following they exchanged the glory of god for a lie which leads to idolatry there's that interesting word again idolatry and the worship of created things number three they rejected the knowledge of god exchanging the natural relations for the unnatural relations in verse 26 go ahead and look there it says for this reason that is because of these things god gave them up to dishonorable passions that they already had that was already going on in their hearts. It says, 4. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now what's really important to note here is that Paul is not saying that homosexuality is the ultimate sin or the ultimate problem. He's not saying, look, if you guys want to know what sinfulness is, you look to homosexuals. That is not what he is saying here. The ultimate problem, according to Romans 1, is not homosexuality or homosexuals. The root of the sin of homosexuality, you find a worship problem. Unfortunately, many, many Christians today, they wrongly fixate on what people do with their bodies, right? Today, many Christians wrongly fixate on what people do with their bodies when they should be focusing on the rejection of God who made their bodies, who owns our bodies and tells us how to rightly use our bodies. Now, that, off, that right there will shift the conversation. We don't focus particularly on acts, but we focus on the rejection of God. That is the heart that leads to all of these issues and all of these problems. In Romans chapter 1, people are not first guilty of homosexuality. That is using their bodies in wrong ways. People are guilty of first, as this says, look there in verse 21 of Romans. It says, for although they knew God, they knew about him because in his creation, a little bit of him is already revealed. It says they did not honor him. It doesn't first say, that these people were committing homosexual acts. It says that they did not honor God, nor did they give thanks to God, but they became futile in their thinking. It's interesting, isn't it? That they're what's driving this are heart issues and thinking, and then it works its way out into the physical. And that's where they are exchanging the glory of God for images, worshiping other things, ultimately worshiping themselves so that is what their main problem was and it evidenced itself in all sorts of ways i mean certainly they were engaging in sexual immorality so jude verse four he confirms that they had indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire but you've got to see that this is one manifestation of a larger heart problem. So in Ezekiel sixteen forty nine, Sodom's problems are summarized in other ways. He says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister, Sodom. So, so in the passage here, Ezekiel, God, through Ezekiel, is delivering this prophecy. And he's saying that you Israelites are actually just the same, even worse than Sodom. And then he goes on and says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. There's this book that uh, some of our gals read called um, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And there, this woman, she is now a pastor's wife. Formerly, she was a uh, professor, a chair of queer studies, and she was a lesbian. And she had, she had then converted to Christianity. And now she's a pastor's wife. She wrote her, her basically a, a, a detailed expression or explanation about how she became a Christian. And she recognizes that her number one issue at the end of the day was pride. It was not lust. Although for some, it certainly is lust. But for her, it was pride. God also says that Sodom had excess food and prosperous ease. But... They did not aid the poor and needy. So here, this is social oppression in a number of different ways. Now, we as Christians know what this is like, don't we? I mean, for our fundamental problem to be a worship problem. We know what this is like. What we do with our bodies, homosexual or heterosexual, is secondary. That's secondary. And you know how we all can tell if we struggle to understand this? Let's say at family parties you show greater concern for your non-Christian relative who is a homosexual than for your non-Christian relative who is living with someone from the opposite sex. You know, I assume that some of you guys are related to people who are expressing themselves in this way, and maybe when you're discussing with other Christians in you know, your family parties, you show more concern for your relative who is, living, who is a, not a Christian and living their life as a homosexual, as opposed to your friend, your relative, who is not a Christian but might be a heterosexual and living with his girlfriend or his boyfriend. That's how you know, you don't quite understand it, that this is a heart problem that is shared by all sinners. Romans chapter 1 speaks about man in general. Romans chapter 2, where the Jews are under the same indictment as the pagans there in chapter 1, that's humanity in general. We all share the same problem. So if you know what it's like to express concern for that, let's say in that party illustration, In that moment, you could possibly, maybe, possibly be caring more for that person's relational status between your family and society than their standing in relationship before God. That's probably what one would care about more if they are showing themselves to do that. The truth is that apart from Jesus, that relative and you are fundamentally the same. That's incredible, isn't it? that when you boil it down our hearts are exactly the same so don't think you know if you want to truly love your friend or love your relative who is not living according to god's ways don't think for a second that you are somehow different from them simply because you use your body to sin in a more generally accepted way than they do you are the same if you think that the non-Christian homosexual is somehow in worse spiritual shape than a non-Christian heterosexual, let First Corinthians 6 verse 9 rebuke you, which says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. That's everyone right there. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These folks in each of their categories do not inherit the kingdom of God because they all share the common trait of having a heart that rejects God. And before God, whether the homosexual or the thief, they share the same fundamental position. Apart from the blood of Jesus, they have no salvation and they are underneath the judgment of God. Uh, As we seek to love our neighbors, realize that until you find yourself identifying with, let's say, your homosexual relative who's not a believer, until you find yourself identifying with them, in heart issues you're not going to be able to minister to them in a way that god intends for you to if you're constantly thinking about that their sin is so vastly and so fundamentally different from yours then most likely you'll be so concerned with their actions to the exclusion of their hearts how do you minister to someone like that if you you don't know what it's like to be a sinner when that happens, your aim will most likely be behavior modification. Salvation for that person, at least as, as so far as you understand it, is them not doing something. Instead of a heart that submits to Jesus Christ and acknowledges him as the Lord and Savior. But when you understand this, that we share the same fundamental heart problem as sinners apart from Christ... Then you'll be able to love and minister in a way that more resembles Jesus Christ. I mean, you guys just stop and think about who the people Jesus ministered to were. He ministered purposefully to the thieves, the sexually immoral. You guys remember when he goes up to the woman at the well, a sexually immoral woman, or how he lets prostitutes come before him and anoint his feet before he dies. And that's an act of worship, regardless of how dirty their past is. That's a man who knows that all of these people, the unrighteous inside and even the seemingly righteous on the outside, that they all need salvation in the same way. So if you're visiting with us and you know, and you know that according to God and his word, that homosexuality is a sin that is giving in to same sex lust and acting upon those desires, um, please know that we, share, we are saying that apart from Christ, we share the same heart problem. We acknowledge too that it is a sin, not because we say it is a sin, but because God ultimately says it's a sin, just as much as being a thief is a sin. And what we all have, or again, the number one problem that you and we all share, is not what we do with our bodies, but our rejection of God who made, who owns, and who has told us, what we ought to do with our bodies. That is our fundamental problem. And that whether a homosexual or heterosexual thief, a cheat, a drunkard, that's what the sticking point is, isn't it? It's the submission to God who says that actually you are not living according to my righteous standards. That's the sticking point. Whether one is a thief or whether one is a drunkard or whether or not someone is sexually immoral. That's what sin is. That's what Adam and Eve did. And that's what the Sodomites here are doing. They're not going to let anyone tell them what to do. Look at verse 9. This is what they say. Verse 9. But they said, stand back. This fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. Now the Sodomites response is really telling isn't it this is not a logical response they aren't saying oh wait hold on a second lot let's present some logical thinking and have a debate as to why we think this is actually a righteous thing to do no they're not doing that they simply don't want to be told that they are in the wrong this foreigner this guy who comes from outside of us bringing a judgment upon us that is from outside of us because we certainly haven't said that here is an outsider bringing an outside judgment based on a morality that is outside of the sodomites they just don't want to be told what to do and then an effort really to free themselves from all inhibition they kill they seem to want to kill lot so that right there folks is a very very accurate picture of sin we see this in the gospel of jesus christ comes to save sinners of course the problem is if you must be saved you must acknowledge yourself to be a sinner we have to acknowledge that the god man came from the outside and he bring and he comes bring a judgment based on a righteousness that's not from us but is from outside of us and not defined by us and we know exactly what happened with the people as they tried to rid themselves of this judge The sojourner who, see, he seemed to be a sojourner who now has come to judge. They silence him so they think they can by killing him and hanging him on a tree. Little did they know that God is merciful. And in their murdering of Jesus, Jesus laying down his life would earn the salvation for everyone who turns and repents of their sins and believes, whether they be a heterosexual A homosexual, a thief, or a drunkard. He earns for them salvation, forgiveness, cleansing, right standing with God. He grants them new hearts. Because where we deserve the judgment and punishment, he bears it for us on the cross. He takes all of it. He takes our sins. He takes the wrath that we deserve. And then he receives the wrath as God pours it, not on us, but on him. And then everyone who confesses faith in that Jesus, that he indeed is Lord and Savior, and I submit my life to him, then he gives us forgiveness, free forgiveness, full forgiveness, permanent forgiveness. This is divine intervention. Praise God for it. And we see it in our passage today, actually. Look there at 10. Okay, so even though Lot has made some abominable mistakes, look at what the angels do. Look at verses 10 and 11 there. But the men reached out. Well, so what happens? Look at verse nine. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So he, at this point in time, is outside of the house and he closes the door behind him as if to keep those men from going towards the the angels or men as he describes their bodily form. Then they pressed hard against him to break down the door, but the men reached out their hands, that is the angels, and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. So here the angels move immediately to to save Lot, and then then they strike the men with blindness. Immediately they act to protect as well as to judge. Look at verses uh, 13 and 14. Or look at 12, sorry. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else in here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people have become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up! get up out of this place for the lord is about to destroy it but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting so maybe this is more like a suggestion right up but you might you might want to think about getting out of this place for the lord may destroy it he has no moral persuasion here this is similar actually to the flood in some ways noah was chosen to build the ark and for a hundred years he preached the gospel wanting the people to repent, but they rejected it. They were eating and drinking. We assume probably mocking Noah. Here, Lot faithfully urges his, well, we're not entirely sure how faithful he was, but he urges his sons nonetheless to flee. But they do think it's just one big joke or maybe that he is just one big joke. Look at verse 15. We see his response here. As morning dawned. So, okay, Sodom, Already has a whole night basically to repent. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. That is a crazy little insert there that really reveals the heart of Lot he lingers and let's just recall what's going on here right these messengers come and they say god has told us to destroy this city and yet still lot lingers and i so want to be hard on lot here and i'm sure you guys may want to be hard on lot too but we are just like him aren't we i mean he contemplates he he hesitates he surveys maybe everything that he has built because we knew that he was to some degree a pretty wealthy wealthy man he he looks at everything that he holds dear which means also that he's calculating everything that he could lose and he pauses in the face of destruction now if you were in his position if you were surveying all of your belongings and all of your possessions okay so start surveying all of your belongings and possessions all of your bank accounts whether small or great all of your relationships all of your hopes and dreams for your children, all of your hopes and dreams for your grandkids, your own personal five-year goals, your own personal 10-year old goal, ten-year goals, would you not pause just for a second? I think we would. And I think also that it means that if we would pause just for a little bit, we wouldn't fully acknowledge and embrace the fact that God has not only given us all those things, but that yet we also haven't entrusted all those things to God too. His lingering shows possibly that Lot was not only in the city, but in the process of being in the city, he became dangerously close to being of the city. One commentator said that Lot perhaps felt more secure inside the gates of the city of Sodom than outside of it with God I pray that that Lot's problem would never be our problem, that we would never linger around those things that lead to destruction, that lead towards sin. I pray that our desires would be so aligned with God's plans that when he calls us to go and to move and to flee, then we certainly would go. Thankfully, as the passage shows, even when we tend to linger, God sends us a reminder through his word, through the Bible, through friends, through the prophets, to jolt us from our sin. And in Lot's case, look there, it's verse 16, see what happens. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. So they physically are grabbing them and going and Lot is surveying all of his belongings. The angels grab them and they go. But not only do they seize them, they set him. So Lot is in such a position where he needs to be seized and he needs to be set in order that he might survive. That also is evidence of God's mercy here. He seizes them and then he sets them. And it says right there, it's all because the Lord was being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. I'm going to start praying that for some of my friends, that the Lord would seize them. I have prayed that the Lord would arrest certain friends in their sins. What that means is the Lord would appear to them similarly to Paul and that he would be arrested, that they would be arrested, come to know that they are sinful beings, uh, sinful creatures who have rebelled against God and earned for themselves just condemnation, according to the Bible, hell, and that they would confess their sins to God. But I'm now going to add to that that the Lord would seize them and set them in places where sometimes they don't even know they need to be unfortunately even though the angel sees them his lingering lingers look at 18 and lot said to them oh no my lords behold your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life but i cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and i die how does he know with these divine messengers who are t- who are given the charge of overseeing the destruction that he can't escape destruction those angels are the ones to carry out the destruction and yet he's negotiating here. his li- lingering is lingering behold verse 20 behold this city is near enough to flee to and it is a little one let me escape there is it not a little one and my life will be saved so right there, the implication is that their sin is little. This, this uh, many cities, as we go on to see, that uh, get destroyed here, that the whole valley gets destroyed. It's not just Sodom and Gomorrah. The implication being that this small city is actually sharing in the same sins as they. And they said their sin isn't so bad. I mean, Lot has not learned anything from this Sodom adventure here. He already needed to, to be bailed out in Genesis chapter 14 by, uh, as he gets carried off, um, from sodom and then here again he needs to be spiritually delivered so obviously it seems spiritually delivered from sodom and yet he's negotiating let me stay close as possible here but he lingered and then he goes on and he negotiates remember that lot stands in contrast to abraham so lots pleading in this chapter right Did you guys notice that he pleads for the chapter don't don't uh, destroy this little one The angels answer in 21, behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city for which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you are there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little. You guys remember that Abraham, too, was pleading for a city. But he was citing for the righteous and righteousness lot here. He's pleading for a city so that he might live. He's concerned, it seems, with his very own self. His pleading is meant to stand in contrast with Abraham. So apparently he certainly hasn't learned his lesson here. Look at verse 23. We see here that God destroys Sodom. The sun had risen on the earth while Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained down Sodom and Gomorrah on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulphur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked behind Lot's wife behind him, looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So again, we are reminded of the flood, are we? As the Lord here rains on Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and sulfur, just as he did before, as he opened up the heavens and poured out water. And Lot's wife here, too, she, we assume she just kind of appears out of nowhere. We assume that she's actually a sodomite. She, too, is looking back with her heart longing to be over there. And so she falls in judgment. When, she say, when it says that she became a pillar of salt, um, there is just describing how she eventually has the elements raining upon her. And I, I believe uh, turning into ash. I mean, that's stark judgment there. And then it leaves us with Abraham in verse 27. Go ahead and look there. And Abraham went early in the morning to a place where he had stood before the Lord. Interestingly, right there, uh, if you recall, after Abraham and Sarah sort of host the Lord and the angels, the Lord brings them out to the same place, overlooking Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 28. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst, midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So as we conclude, it's important to note that we are reminded of a clear lesson here. That there is salvation for those who walk by faith and submit themselves to the creator and the Lord. Salvation for those who side with the righteousness of God. And then there is judgment for those who are of the wicked. That is those who reject God and his ways. As we know, as God created Adam and Eve and he drew towards them, he drew towards man to love them. And then the people are basically saying, I don't give a rip what you say. And according to the word, this is rebellion. The judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah certainly presents that there is salvation for the righteous and then judgment for the wicked. And it also presents the devastating consequences for those those who are drawn towards those wickedness. This is Lot and his family. Lot is the one who flirts with danger. He is lured to the city. He is in the city, but being dangerously close to being of the city. And he's made some horrible, terrible decisions that actually resemble the folks in which the morals in which uh, the city he lives in. This is sexual immorality that he himself doesn't really see quite so clearly. And living in the city and giving into temptations to live by sight is taking a serious toll, as it shows there in verses 30 to 38. It's taking a toll on him and his family and his daughters in particular look at 30 to 38 i'll just read through this now lot went up out of zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters for he was afraid to live in zor so he lived in a cave with his two daughters and the firstborn said to the younger our father is old and there is not a man on earth that is probably there is no one pledged to be married now <clears throat> to come into us after the manner of Of all the earth, that is to have children. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with the father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also and the younger arose and lay with him and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So Lot and his daughters they end up becoming so afraid to live in Zoar that they live in a cave and fearing that they're not going to have any offspring, that should send us back to Abraham and Sarah, who are trusting in the Lord, even though they might struggle. These girls here, they seem to be working out the sexual ethic that they had grown up in, having grown up in Sodom. So they end up conceiving through an incestuous relationship based on the violation of their father. This is a reminder to us as a church as a whole genesis chapter 19 we live in a world but we should never be of the world that's what faith in christ calls us to while we sojourn in this world having our hopes and our hearts set on god and god alone trusting in the gospel of jesus christ in whom alone there is salvation and forgiveness we should be submitting our whole selves to him All the while, as people made in the image of God, we are to mirror to others as we walk in righteousness before others. We are to mirror others the characteristics of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, showing that he alone can save us from our sins. So given that we know that God judges the unrepentant, who are those he saves? The answer is the repentant. Again, it doesn't matter if one is a heterosexual, a homosexual, a drunkard, or a thief. He saves everyone who turns from their sins and believes. The question for us today is, do you or have you turned from your sins? If not, repent and believe. And there is forgiveness. We see this great divine intervention reach its climax in Jesus Christ, who walked on the earth. Who became flesh, who died on the cross for sins, and calls everyone, no matter how bad they may be or may think they are, he says, free salvation for you. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians verse 6, or chapter 6. Go ahead and turn there. This is a verse that we've looked at before, a verse that I've certainly mentioned before. It's a verse that not only humbles us, but it's a verse that gives us great hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. <clears throat> it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, we all right there, if we just pause, all of us should say, I find myself in those categories. All of us should find ourselves in those categories, right? The question is, how do we be saved? How are we saved? How do we get salvation and forgiveness of sins? Paul goes on to say, and such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Every single person who finds themselves in those categories today, if they fly to Christ, they receive all those things, sanctification, washing, a cleansing, justification, forgiveness of sins, adoption into his family. And so he says, such were some of you. So if there's any inkling in you, to look at your homosexual friend or your neighbor or your co-worker and think that they are so vastly different from you, we are severely wrong. Because we, all of us stand before God as sinners in need of grace and forgiveness. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and we acknowledge that you are a God of grace and a God of mercy. Lord, we thank you that there are examples of people in scripture, drunkards, people who commit incestuous uh, who who have incestuous relationships, murderers, haters of you, and all of them are saved. Lord, we pray that we as Christians would truly know what it's like to minister as you want us to and intend us to where we call people regardless of their sin to repent and believe father we pray that you would give us a unique ability by your spirit's power to know other people and know them because we know ourselves that we look at our own hearts and we recognize that we fundamentally apart from your working the working of jesus christ and the movement of your spirit lord we share the same exact heart as everyone else on the planet Make us effective evangelists as we hold out a great and wonderful hope that there is indeed forgiveness of sins for everyone who repents and believes. In your name we pray. Amen.